Thank you for listening to the podcast of Bible Baptist Church. Please visit our website at www.southbaybbc.org for more information. Now to put the text that we've just read into context, here are the events in real time. John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus Christ, has just been murdered in prison by order of Herod the Tetrarch. John's disciples recover his body, but they also tell Jesus that his cousin was executed in prison. So Jesus is mourning. He grieves. He is all God, because the Bible says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So one of the most profound thoughts in the Bible is that Jesus is God. God in the flesh. But he's also all man. And as man, he can relate to you. As man, he can relate to me. And when a loved one passes, Jesus felt the pain of the passing of his cousin, John. And John was was murdered in such a brutal and sadistic way. So the things that we experience in our day-to-day existence, either by reading the news or in our neighborhoods or whatever, Christ experienced that also. So when he heard that his cousin had died, Jesus departed and went to a desert place. His intention was to go and to grieve. His intention was to go and to mourn. His intention was to get alone with God and pray. So we find some things about Jesus' actions as I explain this text that show us a lot about our Lord. First, during times of trouble, during times of difficulty, he sought out God the Father. During times of stress and distress, he sought out God the Father in prayer. However, while Jesus was in the desert place, the multitudes discovered that he had left and gone away to pray. So thousands upon thousands of people came out into the desert place looking for Jesus. The Bible says that there were 5,000 men plus women and children who came out seeking Jesus. So our Lord, the other thing we learn about him, is that he set aside his feelings. He set aside the pain and the hurt that he experienced because his cousin had died. And the Bible says our Lord showed compassion upon them. So we have 5,000 people plus women and children, and our Lord, the Bible says, begins to heal the sick. So while he's healing the sick, it's a day-long event. Thousands and thousands of people are there. And they've got palsy, probably demons needed to be cast out, whatever the the sickness was during the ancient days. But Jesus patiently worked his way through the multitude. So as the sun began to set, the disciples said, we need to send these folks home, Lord. We don't have enough food to feed them. So Jesus told the disciples, sit them down in companies, put them down in ranks. How much food do we have? And we heard about the loaves and the fishes and how Jesus blessed the loaves and the fishes and fed the 5,000. Now, in our text, the Bible says that in verse 44, and they did eat of the loaves were about 5,000 men. In the harmony of the Gospels, Mark, John, it tells us more details about this event. But what I want us to focus on this morning is how God is present in real time. The Bible says 
that in verse 45, Mark 645. Ah, got it. Now we're back to the word. I'm old school. I, I prefer the book. The Bible says uh, in uh, verse 45, and straightway, immediately, Jesus constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side bef- unto Bethsaida while he sent away the people. Straightway means immediately. Constrained means commanded. So God commanded his disciples to get into a rowboat. The rowboat is about the size of two of these pews put together. I've been to Israel a couple of times, and the last time I was there, a 2,000-year-old fishing boat had been excavated from the Sea of Galilee. And it's, like I said, about the size of two of these pews put together, and it's a rowboat. And you're sitting there, and you row across the Sea of Galilee. Very uncomfortable, very wet, very dank, but very efficient as far as uh, fishing goes. So Jesus ordered his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side unto Bethsaida. Something about the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is really a lake. It's fed by the Jordan River, and it also has underground rivers that uh, feed the lake, and it's fresh water. The width of the Sea of Galilee is about eight miles at its longest place. The length from top to bottom is about 13 miles. So you can imagine, it's big, it's big. And the time that I sailed on it, sun was shining, beautiful white clouds in the sky, the water was calm. This is not what's going to happen with the disciples. What we see here with the disciples is a type or picture of the Christian life. For those of you in the room today who know Jesus Christ and the Lord and Savior, this is a picture of what our walk with God is like. Here are men who served with Jesus Christ. They witnessed the miracles. These men became saved as a result of knowing Jesus Christ and accepting him as the Messiah of Israel. And they served with him. And he allowed them to see the great miracles. And he gave them power via the Holy Spirit to conduct miracles on their own. But after the work was done, Jesus commanded them to get into a boat and he gave them a direction. I want you to go over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And I'm going to wait here on this side. I'm not going to travel with you. God tends to do that. God tends to send you as a Christian out on a mission. God tends to uh, find a, a purpose for your life. Our first point is, what is God is present uh, in the purpose for your life? Everyone has a purpose. Some think their purpose in life is to get famous. Others think their purpose in life is to make a lot of money. Some folks think their purpose in life is to collect a lot of material things. But when we come to Jesus Christ, when we know him as Lord and Savior, our purpose is to serve the almighty God. And by serving God, our purpose is to go out and tell every man, woman, boy and girl about the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what our real purpose is in life. Our purpose is not to get famous and to seek the autographs and the attention of men. Our purpose is not to have our own television show. Our purpose is not to be a movie star. Our purpose is not to drive around in a Bentley or a Rolls Royce. Our purpose is not to have a house in Brentwood or Beverly Hills. Our purpose, once we are saved, is to share the good news that Christ died on the cross for your sins that he was buried. On the third day, he rose from the grave. And if you believe on him, your sins can be forgiven. And you'll have a home in a place called heaven. 
And hell will be reserved for the devil and his angels, not for you. But there's so many bells and whistles in modern society today that blind people to the truth of the love of God and the free gift of salvation. we rather follow the insanity of the news. we rather follow what's going on in the political trials. we rather uh, seek out uh, our ambitious desires. we rather give in to the feelings of our flesh. we rather follow our emotions. Work on this microphone a little bit. I feel like I was on Mount Olympus for a minute. We'd rather follow our emotions. It's close. Let's, let's God-like. That's better. Then follow the Bible and the word of God and God's purpose for our lives. God is present in the purpose for your life. Now, I remember when I was 23, 24, 25 years old, I was wondering, what is, it, what is my reason for being on earth? What is God's purpose for me? What does he want me to do with my life? I went through the paces. You know, I graduated from high school, went to college, went into the military. I developed a resume, but that was not God's real purpose for my life. God's purpose for my life was to meet his son, Jesus Christ, and for Jesus to change my life and wipe away all the sins that polluted me and interfere with my relationship with the living God. What is God's purpose for you? Are you doing God's will? Those of us who call the name of Jesus Christ... Do we pray regularly? Do we meet with the Lord in the morning and seek his will and ask what he would have us do this day? Do we get down on our knees before the living God and say, thy will be done? And after you pray, do you spend time in the Bible? Is Sunday the only time that you open the Bible? Is Sunday the only time you see the Bible when it flashes on the screen? Or do you open the Bible up And you start your day eating the word of God, eating that sweet honey, enjoying that spiritual connection that comes with studying and meditating and contemplating on his holy word. That's how you grow in grace. That's how you become a strong, independent Christian. That's how you have the power and the confidence and the authority to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with a lost and dying world. And then do you live a separated life? Holy life. It's, ooh, you can feel a tremor through the room. Do you live a separated, holy life? Not one foot in church and the other foot in the world? Are you listening? That's what God calls us out to do. The last time I stood up behind this holy desk, I talked about Samson, a Nazarite, called out to live a holy life. But you know what happened to him? He got blinded by the things of this world. He got blinded and got into womanizing to the, to the point where he was physically blinded by the Philistines. That's what happens to modern day Christians. We get blinded by the internet. We get blinded by cable television. We get blinded by the sparkling things of this world. We get blinded by reality television stars instead of separating ourselves and living a holy life. That's part of what God's purpose is for our lives. God is present in that purpose. We see here with the disciples in Mark chapter 6, verse 45, that in real time, they were doing ministry with the Lord. The first thing the Lord had them do was take those 5,000 people and put them in order companies, ranks, so that they could be fed. 
Then after they were fed, the ministry continued with the disciples cleaning up the area. They collected all the fragments. And then once all the fragments were collected, Jesus ordered them to off to another purpose. And that purpose was to get into a ship and go to the other side under Bethsaida. That's what happened in real time, 2,000 years ago. And Jesus was in that moment. Jesus was in the command. Jesus was there with his disciples. He gave their life purpose. We have work to do in Bethsaida. Your work here is done. You've cleaned the area. You've policed it up, the way we used to say in the military. You've collected the fragments. We've taken care of the masses. We've shown compassion. We've shown God's love. You've learned how to minister by watching me. Now we have something else to do. Get into the ship. Go to Bethsaida. So they obeyed God. They obeyed our Lord. They obeyed Jesus. And they got into the boat. They didn't question him. They got into the ship. And you have to keep in mind, the sun's going down. It wasn't like when I was on the Sea of Galilee where the sun is bright and there are beautiful white clouds floating in the sky and nice smooth blue water and and birds sitting on your boat, you know, saying, welcome to the Holy Land. That's how my experience was. With the disciples, they didn't have a guide except for Jesus. And he said, get into the boat. Sun's going down, getting dark. No electric lights, no LEDs, nothing but stars in the sky. But the sea is dark, the night is dark. Sun's going down. But they carried out God's purpose for their life. So they get in the boat, and they're rowing. Remember, it's eight miles across the Sea of Galilee in a rowboat with the sun going down. Folks, they were out on that water for about nine hours. For about nine hours. Just rowing and rowing. And they're fishermen. I get it. Peter's there, fisherman, strong guy. But sooner or later, your shoulders get tired. (laughs) After nine hours, you get hungry. After nine hours, you run out of things to talk about on the ship. And their main concern is to get to the other side. So when they got into the boat and God gave, uh, Jesus gave them commands, God was present in the purpose for their lives. But then secondly, we find that God is present in your time of need as he was in their time of need. So verse 45, straightway, Jesus constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before into Bethsaida while he sent away the people. Verse 46, and when he had sent them away, Jesus departed into a mountain to pray. So he went back to spend time with his father because he's still feeling the pain of the news that his cousin had been killed in prison. So he gets alone with God the Father. In the meantime, the disciples, in verse uh, 47, the Bible says, And when even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and Jesus, he alone on the land. In verse 48, Jesus saw them toiling and rowing. For the wind was contrary unto them, about the fourth watch of the night, he cometh unto them. Put on the brakes right there. So here we are, sun's going down, disciples get into the ship, they're rowing across the Sea of Galilee, starting to get a little bit tired. 
They're uh, almost nine hours into this adventure. How do we know that? Because the fourth watch is from 3 o'clock in the morning until 6 o'clock in the morning. Four watches, like guard duty, being a sentinel, that sort of thing, watching for danger. So it starts at 6 o'clock at night, 6 to 9, 9 to 12, 12 to 3, 3 to 6 in the morning. Fourth watch, 3 o'clock in the morning to 6 o'clock in the morning. So they're out there rowing, and they're toiling, and they're, they're struggling to get across the Sea of Galilee. The Bible says why? Because the wind was contrary against them. The Sea of Galilee is surrounded by mountains. So storms can either come from the Mediterranean Sea in the west, or storms or wind can come through the mountain pass. And you can actually see the mountain passes when you're in Israel. So if the wind comes through the mountain pass, it creates a terrible storm on the Sea of Galilee. And that's what these men were up against sometime between 3 o'clock and 6 o'clock in the morning. I used to work graveyard. And when you work graveyard, you know, you normally start maybe about 10 or 11 o'clock at night, and you go to about 7 o'clock in the morning. And there's some time on graveyard I used to call hitting the wall. Or about 4 o'clock in the morning, I mean, it's as dark as dark as dark can be. Can I get a witness, Brother Sanko? It's dark. <laughs> and it's nothing you can do. You can't drink enough Mountain Dew, you know, to stay awake. Can't drink enough coffee to stay awake. But you got to plunge on. You got to stay awake and do your job. So these men are out on the Sea of Galilee about 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, and it is pitch black. Pitch black. And what's happening? The wind is blowing. And the waves are crashing across the bow of their little rowboat. That's a little terrifying. I don't know how many of you guys are ocean guys. I'm an ocean guy. I love it. Uh, if I could grow gills and live out there, I would. <laughs> But everybody's not a fan of the ocean because it's a lot of power. It's like fire, you know. Fire does some nice things, you know. Creates beautiful barbecue. Get up in the morning, you know, you can have some waffles, you know. But if you don't respect it, it'll burn your house down. Same thing with ocean. Ocean's wonderful. Feels nice during the summer, cools us off. Go fishing, you know, catch some fish out of there. But if you don't respect it, it will drown you. So here we are out in the middle of the night, toiling, trying to get this rowboat across the ocean. And they're not making any headway. And they're pulling. And the waves are crashing over the ship. The wind is blowing. Ah, the wind is howling. Oh, it's terrible. And what happens? They start getting a little afraid here. Why? Think they might drown. Tough way to die. So they're struggling. They're pulling. They're screaming at each other. You know, do this, do that. They're sailors. So they're fighting to save their own lives out there. And what I found interesting about this passage is that the Bible says in verse 48, and he saw them. You with me? And he saw them. The last time we saw Jesus, he was on the land. The last time we saw Jesus, he's in a mountain praying. He's not on the water. It's a beautiful thought. That's right. Bulb, light bulb goes off. Yeah, he's not there. But he saw them. Bible doesn't tell us how he saw them. Maybe he was standing on top of the mountain and he did that and he saw this little boat bobbing in the middle of the storm. Doesn't say that. But remember, he's God. So being God, he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. So the Spirit, Holy Spirit, might have said, the fellows are in trouble out there, Lord. And lo and behold, they were. They were fighting for their lives. But in the midst of fighting for their lives, in the midst of their time of need, 
he saw them. Powerful. That's a, that's a sermon in itself, preacher. He saw them. What's the application? In your time of need, it may seem like God is far, 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 far away. In your time of need, when the bills need to be paid, when the car needs to be fixed, when the children need shoes, when your friends uh, aren't as friendly as they used to be, when somebody's backbiting you, gossiping about you, chewing on you, in those difficult times where a loved one, when Jesus said a man's foes will be those of his own house, when a loved one is giving you a hard time, he sees you. You're not out there by yourself. You're not out there on the ocean trying to survive. God sees you. And in time of need, he sees your every need. You need money, he sees your every need. You need an answer to prayer, he sees your every need. You have a physical, medical challenge, he sees your every need. Your heart is broken, he sees your every need. And he responds. That's the beauty of our God. It's not like the idols of the Philistines or the idols of the Midianites where they had these stone idols and wooden idols all over the place and they're praying, oh, save us, help us. No response, <laughs> no word. But when we pray to the living God of the universe, when we pray to him through Jesus Christ, when we ask for help and assistance from God Almighty, then God Almighty hears. He sees your need. God is present in our time of need. In verse 48, he sees them toiling and rowing. The wind is contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night, sometime between three in the morning and six in the morning, something miraculous happens. Jesus walks upon the sea. You don't see that every day, do you? First time I heard about it was Jesus walking upon the sea. If you ever need proof that Jesus is God, he walked upon the sea. Next time you go to the swimming pool, try it. I'm serious. Try it. Try to walk on the water. And you don't have to tell anybody what you're doing. Well, I was in church a couple of Sundays ago, and Brother Brooks said I ought to try to walk on. You don't tell anybody. <laughs> you know. But, but get there at the side of the pool. Get on get at the six-foot side. Make it interesting. <laughs> Unless you can't swim, you know. Then, then try it over at four feet where you can stand up. But uh, I've seen those little insects do it. You ever seen those little spiders, you know, that get on the water and they just skim across the top of the water? You know, and you look at the, they look at their little insect feet and it barely pushes down on the surface of the water. So if they can do it, how come you can't do it? Because you outweigh them, you know, by about two or 300 pounds. But think about it. A human being in the flesh, God in the flesh, was able to walk on the water. I can't walk on the air, but you know, I'm not even going to try that part. But he tried. But he did it. He did it. He did it. And only God has that sort of omniscient, omnipotence and ability to command the elements. The Bible says, what manner of man is this? What manner of man is this? Who died upon the tree? What manner of man is this? 
who gave his life for me. What manner of man is this? Is this man from Galilee? What manner of man is this who gave his life for me? That's who Jesus is. God in the flesh. So he was able to walk on water, and he was playing with them a little bit. They're out there struggling, trying not to drown, so it looked like he was going to walk right past them. Fellas. What's happening? (laughs) And they're out there, you know, trying. Come on, man. (laughs) We got issues here. Come on. (laughs) But the Bible says that would have passed by them. So he's just messing with them. Just messing with them. And then they didn't even recognize that it was Jesus. So he changes his course in verse 49. But when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit, and they cried out. So in those days, the uh, disciples were, uh, and everybody else, thought their ghost actually walked around. They thought that when people died, their ghosts and their spirits and you know, just walked around the earth and all that sort of thing. So they were afraid. That was their first response. They did not see that uh, Jesus had actually come out to be with them. But once they recognized that uh, God or Jesus recognized uh, their time of need and their difficulty, then they were happy to see him. The point of that little section there is that Jesus was testing his disciples just like he tests you. What Jesus did, he sent them out on the Sea of Galilee, and he knew that that storm was going to rise up. He sent them out on the Sea of Galilee, and he knew that they were going to run into some difficulty out there. That happens in our lives. We get up in the morning, we don't know what's going to happen, you know, throughout the course of a day. We step out in faith. I got up this morning, got in my car, got on the freeway, and I drove here by faith. I'm hearing all kind of horror stories on the radio about what happened while I was asleep. And as I'm driving down the freeway, I see this big truck pass me that's hauling all kinds of hazardous materials. What if that thing turned over? What if I got splashed with hazardous materials? What if they turned me into the Incredible Hulk, Pastor Aguera? What would I do? But fortunately, I got here, and I'm not some mutant because the truck didn't turn over. That's God's grace and God's mercy. So he got me where I needed to be. And God knows what lies ahead of us. And for those of us who know him as Lord and Savior, he prepares the way. He sees our need and he sees what lies ahead. He allows these tests to happen. Why? It develops our perseverance. Ah. Develops our patience. Ah. And it develops our like training for the Olympics. If I go to the YMCA and I work out in a 50-meter pool, I'm not ready for the Olympics. I've got to, I've got to get into a big Olympic-sized pool in order to prepare for the Olympics. As Christians, keep in mind that you're disciples too. And these disciples had some tough times ahead. They didn't know, they didn't believe that our Lord was going to be captured, tortured, nailed to a cross, and have a spear from a Roman soldier thrust into his side. They didn't know all that. They're living in pretty good times here. They're seeing the sick get healed. 
They're seeing the, the dead walk again. They're seeing the lame being given back their health. They're given that power too, and they go out in two by two to the different villages throughout Galilee and throughout Judea. And they're casting demons out in the name of Jesus Christ. That's heady stuff. That's heady stuff. But they didn't know that the leader, our God, was going to be cut away from the herd. They didn't know that the Romans were going to torment him. They didn't know that Judas was going to betray him. They didn't know any of that stuff. Why? Because they're living in real time. And then after Jesus rises from the grave and he gives them the great commission, persecution breaks out with the new church, the book of Acts. Persecution after persecution after persecution by the Roman emperors to the point where only one of the surviving 11 apostles died a natural death. (laughs) And that was after being exiled on Patmos and after being boiled in oil, according to tradition. But the other 10 were all martyred. Peter, upside down. Bartholomew, you know, shot full of arrows. James, they were all martyred. So there were tough times ahead. What Jesus is doing here on the Sea of Galilee It's a little test that toughens them up. So their perseverance, not to give up rowing that boat and sink in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Their patience to trust in the Lord because the Lord sent them out on that mission in the first first place. And their faith to believe that Jesus would deliver them. Take those factors and move them over into your world, into your life. I don't know the circumstances of every man and woman in this room, but everybody has challenges that you will meet. As soon as the service is over, you get into your car and you drive away. That's when it begins. We're in a sanctuary right now. Now the devil will come in and say something like, what do you want for lunch? You know? Or the devil will creep in and say, what color dies he wearing? Or the devil will creep in and say, man, this is a long sermon. (laughs) Hot in here. Mm." That's what he does. That's what he does. Try to trick you a little bit, get a little chatter going, whatever. But we know that once we step outside of the sanctuary, then the battle is on again. The Bible says that we are to endure hardness as a soldier of Christ. That's who you are. When I was in Israel, what impressed me was the 17 and 18-year-old young women walking around with automatic and semi-automatic weapons. And they just weren't, you know, <laughs> for, uh, for show. You know, these women knew how to use those weapons. And when you leave the airport in uh, Israel, they're the ones that walk up to you and ask you certain questions. You know, were you in Bethlehem? Did you go to Jericho? Do you have anything on you, you know? That's uh, going to cause us to arrest you today. <laughs> that's, how, that's how they do the anti-terrorism thing over there. But they're very accomplished, very competent, very professional individuals. Because they have to have that sort of professionalism in that, in that uh, military situation over there. So we, as Christians, are to endure hardness as a good soldier of Christ. Soldier's life was a hard life. I was a soldier for six years. I trained for four years before I went into the military. 
I was an infantry officer. I jumped out of airplanes as a paratrooper. I've slept in the mud. I've slept in the cold. It's a tough life. Military life is not for the faint of heart. But once you get through the testing, once you get through the trial, when you get into the civilian world, you have the confidence of a thousand men. Once you jump out of a perfectly good airplane with a perfectly good parachute, think you can do anything, especially when you're only 23 or 24 years old. So that's what it is for us as Christians. We have the God of the universe, the God of the universe behind us. We have God himself who raised Jesus from the dead. That's how he got out of the grave. God brought him forth. And that same God is calling us to endure hardness as a good soldier of Christ. And we get the hardness through going through trials that teach us perseverance, patience, and faith. So God is always present during your time of need. Thirdly and finally, God is present with good news. In this case, good news is good news. Not, uh, we normally refer to the gospel as good news, but the good news for these disciples floating around in this boat was, uh, is located in um, uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 50. And the Bible says, for they all saw him. All the disciples saw Jesus and were troubled. And immediately... Jesus talked with them and saith unto them, and saith unto them, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. That's good news. Because they're expecting Wolfman, Dracula, you know, Frankenstein, you know, creature from the Black Lagoon, you know, Godzilla, or whatever. You know, they're expecting some monster, you know, to swallow them up in the middle of the night. Right on? <laughs> and who is it? <laughs> It's Jesus. And Jesus is feeling good. He's walking on the water. You're having a good time, you know, after watching them for about nine hours. <laughs> He's a CEO. You know, he can have a little fun if he wants to. And he says, be of good cheer. It's not a demon. It's not a ghost. It's not a spirit. It's not a witch. It is I. It is I. How powerful is that? Man, that calms your heart down, doesn't it? Amen. That's what happens with you, folks. We get afraid. We don't know what's going to happen with November 8th with this election. We have a choice between what my mother used to say, the, the devil and the deep blue sea. <laughs> We're between a rock and a hard place. <laughs> it's like the guy that jumped off the 140th floor of the building, you know, and he's falling through the air, and he gets to the 50th floor, and the guy looks at and says, how you doing? He says, so far, so good. Not the fall, <laughs> it's the landing. So that's kind of like where we are right now. We're waiting, waiting to see how it goes. I'm at the 50th floor waiting to see what happens next. And this is enough to scare you if we did not know that Daniel talked about it, Isaiah talked about it, John talked about it, <laughs> Jesus warned us about it. Paul told Timothy that in the last days it would be perilous times. So why are we surprised? Why don't we take comfort and peace in knowing that, ah, it's finally coming true? Back in the 1980s, I'm a, I was a baby Christian. And I, when you're a baby Christian, you get all excited about the book of Revelation, you know, and, and the Antichrist coming and the rapture of the church. And when you go out soul winning, that's all you want to tell people about. Yeah, Jesus is coming for the church. And, you know, the last days are going to be perilous times. And then one day, I woke up in the 21st century. My goodness, what happened? It's coming to pass. 
everything we talked about back in the 80s, everything we got excited about back in the 80s when we talked about Bible prophecy, prophecy, it's coming to pass. Wow. If you're not grounded in your faith, if you don't know why you believe what you believe, if you don't know why you believe what you believe, you're going to get swept away. But if you believe that all this is the will of God, that everything that's happening around us, God is in control, either in your personal life or in our global life with the country. God is in control of it. God said it was going to happen, but God provided a solution. And that solution is he who walks on the water and says, be of good cheer. It is I. That's where our faith has to rest. It's more than a hymn. It has to be a way of life. It has to be a change of heart where our faith rests in Jesus Christ and all that he has done and all that he is able to do. But one day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I don't care if it's a reality star. I don't care if it's a king, a queen, a prime minister, a presidential candidate, CEOs, the, the head of uh, Wells Fargo. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's where we're headed. That's where we're headed. We get distracted by the headlines. We get distracted by the news. We get distracted by family events. We get distracted about how much money is in our bank account. We get distracted about how much food is in our refrigerator. We get distracted by bill collectors. We get distracted. We get distracted by our kids. We get distracted. We get distracted. We get distracted by school. We get distracted by the ability not to do our homework. We get distracted. But it's God, through Jesus Christ, who says, be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. So we talk about the presence of God. God is present in the purpose for your life. God is present in your time of need. God is present with good news. Lastly, turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. And we'll wrap it up right there. Philippians chapter 4. Paul writing to the church at Philippi. Chapter 4, verse 8. And if you're not there, for the sake of time, I'll read it for you. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Paul, speaking to the church of Philippi, says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report or reputation, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, Think about these things, that which is honest, that which is just, that which is pure, that which is lovely, that which has a good reputation. Any virtue, any praise, think on these things. Verse 9, those things which you have both learned and received, that you've read about in the Bible, that you've heard preached, that you've heard taught, and heard and seen in me. Paul says, do. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul says, do. And what's the result? The God of peace shall be with you. That's pretty clear. The God of peace shall be with you. Most important things in life as I get older, my relationship with God, I have peace of mind. And when I put my head down on the pillow at night, I don't have to worry. Peace of mind, when I walk down the street, there's nobody looking for me. <laughs> Amen? And some, some of you folks are been through this and that, and you understand what I mean. 
It's nice to have that peace when you walk into a room and it's the peace of God that surrounds you. People look at you and say, why are you so calm? What medication are you on? <laughs> I'm not. I'm a Christian. I know Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Knowing the God of peace is with us. We have peace of mind. The other important thing is health. The older I get, the more I appreciate being in good health. And then I appreciate family and friends and a good church. You don't know how important a good church is, unless you've been to 14 churches looking for a church. That was the route I went through. You guys know what I'm talking about. That's what counts. I don't worry about how much money is in my bank account because the God of peace meets my needs. I don't worry about that, you know, 2002 Toyota I drive outside because the God of peace meets my needs. He provides me with a great mechanic. He makes this thing run, you know, all day and all night. And then when I go in, you know, pay for oil change or something, he says, ah, give me 20 bucks. <laughs> ah, give me $25. What? God takes care of our needs. It's nothing better than having the God of peace ruling and reigning in your life. Now, this message has been directed toward Christians. When, uh, when a preacher prepares a message, you pray over it, and uh, you ask the Lord to give you the verses and gives you the outline and the illustrations to use so he can speak to his people. That's how, that's how sermons are created. We don't write them, you know, you know, six or seven months in advance, pull them out, and use them on a special day. I never preach the same sermon twice because God has, a fresh, has fresh oil for you. He has a fresh word for you. But if there's somebody in the room today, all this has gone over your head. Why? Because you don't have that relationship with God that the believers in Jesus Christ do. The Bible says that your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. That, that word iniquities means sin. And this is out of the book of Isaiah. And the separation is actually a wall or a partition. This is Isaiah chapter 59 verse 1. So God hates sin. God is a holy God. So if we have sin that we practice, or if we have sin that we harbor in our hearts, God hates it. But he's willing to forgive it through Jesus Christ and the work that Christ did at Calvary. So if there's someone here today, you're not absolutely certain that each and every sin is forgiven, all you have to do is just ask the Lord. And he will forgive your sins. You don't have to stand up and tell us uh, what your sin is. I'm mildly interested. I can't forgive it. But God is very much interested because he sent his only begotten son to die on that cross. En français, que Dieu est tant aimé le monde qu'il a donné son fils unique afin que quand lui ne perdisse pas et qu'il ait la vie éternelle. Oui? Amen. So we know that Christ, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's all you have to bring to the table your sins. God will do the rest of the work. For the believers, seek God's presence. Seek to walk with God, not just on Sunday morning and Sunday evening or, or Wednesday night, but seek God's presence. It's nothing more wonderful than to wake up in the presence of God and spend your day walking with him through the garden.